Hello, I am Joshua P. Warren, and this is Joshua P. Warren Daily. And boy, do I have a weird story for you about something that happened right off the coast of Puerto Rico. I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. I, my, my research is so often ahead of the curve, it's frightening. So here is this story that uh, is really exciting to me. You know, of course, I have spent many, many years doing research around Puerto Rico, and I think I am the number one person who has brought a lot of the strange activity there into the English-speaking media. So far, most of it's only been in, in Spanish, and it hasn't had a very wide distribution here in the United States and, and other parts of, of the world. And... Of course, I spent the better part of five years living in Puerto Rico up until last year, right there, uh, you know, on the coast, not just in San Juan where all the tourists go, but on the West Coast, and uh, and and examining all of these reports and documenting all of these uh, UFOs flying around and. Of course, I did a short film called O UFOs: A New Discovery, which featured homeland security footage of some strange dark object flying around the Aguadilla Puerto Rico airport and I think that footage is even more amazing than the footage that we keep seeing from the USS Nimitz incident which happened in 2004 uh, in the Pacific and uh, where, of course, you know, we have the, the tic-tac-shaped UFOs, etc. And that event, the USS Nimitz event, that's the one that has really been the centerpiece of this disclosure movement that's happening that began with the report on the ATIP project in 2017. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons people have focused on that one is because, you know, you had all of these U.S. Navy staff who were were documenting these UFOs over and over again, uh, not only capturing them on film, but being able to to measure them in various ways and um, and saying, like, Basically, we upgraded our technology so that we could detect things that we couldn't detect as well before, and holy cow, look what we are able to now see and determine is a true unidentified flying object. So one of the people who has been leading um, sort of the, the face of this is Commander David Fravor, and he was... He was there in charge of what was happening to a large degree during the USS Nimitz encounters. And so he has gone on a number of television programs and done a number of interviews talking about what happened. And apparently yesterday he went on Joe Rogan's podcast. And of course, Joe Rogan's podcast is one of the biggest podcasts in, in the world. And Joe Rogan is happy to go down the rabbit hole and talk about paranormal stuff and conspiracies and in the interview commander fravor and i'm bringing up uh coverage of this from uh a uk newspaper the daily star um in the coverage of this 
it says that he didn't just talk about the USS Nimitz incident. He talked about another encounter with something very strange that happened off the coast of Puerto Rico. And, and, and before I get into this story, I've got it in front of me. Keep this in mind. The Nimitz thing was over the water in the Pacific. And this thing you're about to hear about is over the water in the Atlantic. And you might say, well, uh, what's water you know, got to do with, with this stuff? Well, for one thing, you have to realize that over 70% of planet Earth is covered in water. And it's really, really deep. As a matter of fact, the, the deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean is right off the coast of Puerto Rico. It's called the Puerto Rico Trench. It's almost 30,000 feet deep. I mean, that's creepy, isn't it? To, to think of, you know, right off the coast of this beautiful island, you have the just this cliff that goes down that's so deep and dark. You could take Mount Everest and sit it down inside that trench, and just the little tip of Mount Everest would be sticking up. So... Here is the headline, U.S. Navy pilot says mystery, quote, dark mass, end quote, emerged from ocean and swallowed torpedo. The subheading here is Commander David Fravor shot to fame for his account of the USS Nimitz UFO encounter, but he has now claimed something even spookier was spotted some 10 years earlier. Okay, so... I'm just going to go through this and, and read it for you. Uh, again, from dailystar.co.uk. A high-ranking U.S. Navy pilot has claimed a chilling dark mass was seen coming up from the depths of the ocean moments before a torpedo disappeared. Ten years before a world-famous incident. Retired U.S. Navy pilot commander David Fravor first shot to public attention in 2017 after describing how his squadron witnessed a 737-sized object just under the surface of the water during training exercises in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego. The incident, which happened in 2004, became known as the USS Nimitz Encounter after pilots then saw a Tic Tac UFO in the skies near the mass. In an explosive new account, the pilot has shared another UFO mystery that has quote come out of the woodwork since his first story emerged. Talking to Joe Rogan, Commander Fravor said another pilot once had a similar encounter in the late 1990s off the coast of Puerto Rico. Now, I don't know why they're saying late 1990s. Um, but nonetheless, that's what they're saying, because they, they said 10 years before, but I think the USS, yeah, the USS Nimitz was 2004, so 10 years before that would be 1994. So, But anyway, at some point in the 1990s, off the coast of Puerto Rico, he explained the pilot was flying a CH-53 and was going to pick up an unmanned drone used by the Air Force. This is a type of drone they call a BQM. I don't know what this stuff stands for, okay? But a BQM is an unmanned drone. And apparently this thing landed in the water and needed to be retrieved. A diver was dropped into the water to hook it up and then fly back when something truly bizarre happened. 
he said, quote, they were 50 feet above the water. And he sees this kind of dark mass coming up from the depths, end quote. He went on to say, quote, as they hoist the BQM up, okay, as they hoist the drone up, he's looking at this thing going, what the hell is that? And then it just goes back down underwater. Once they pull the kid and the BQM out of the water, this object descends back into the depths, end quote. Now, the pilot thought the incident was pretty weird, but incredibly, the same thing happened a few months later. Fravers said, quote, he's out picking up a torpedo. Okay, so this time now, he's, last time it was a drone, now he's picking up a torpedo. He's out picking up a torpedo. They hook the diver up to the winch, and as they're lowering him down, he sees this big mass. He goes, it's not a submarine. He's seen submarines before, and once you've seen a submarine, you can't confuse it with something else. He goes on to say, quote, the big object, kind of circular, is coming up from the depths, and he starts screaming through the intercom system to tell them to pull the diver up. And the diver is only a few feet from the water, end quote. He continued, quote, they reversed the winch and the diver's thinking, what the hell is going on? And all of a sudden, he said the torpedo just got sucked down underwater and the object just descended back down into the depths. They never recovered it, end quote. Commander Fravor said the helicopter pilot was adamant the torpedo did not sink as it, quote, literally looked like it got sucked down, end quote. How would you like to be that diver dangling over the ocean in this precarious situation and all of a sudden <laughs> you see in the water and the water can be remarkably clear around there, in some cases crystal clear. You know how the the Caribbean is and the tropics and all that. You see this huge black mass, as they call it, a circular black mass. And you know what's interesting? Obviously, it's going to be somewhat distorted being under the water. But they said it's not a submarine. And that's the only thing that we should have, technically, that should be under the water. But they didn't describe it as having a distinctive structure like man made objects and vehicles. And that's one of the things that's also really odd about the footage that they got in Puerto Rico that I used in my short film uh, outside the Aguadilla airport, because the object that's flying around, it doesn't seem to have a definitive, clear, structured shape, a fixed shape, in other words. It almost seems like it has a slight shape-shifting quality, as if it's able to constantly uh, adjust to all of the variables as it's zooming along. And mind you, this black object that was circling around the airport was of such concern, they grounded all the planes. I mean, it didn't have any obvious propulsion. There wasn't a rotor, there were no wings, there was no jet coming out of the back. It was traveling over 100 miles per hour and uh, didn't have a, a any kind of lights or beacons or squawking transponder, I think they call it. None of that stuff was it didn't seem to acknowledge the security issues around an airport at all 
And this object, it dips in and out of the water. At, at one point, it dips into the water. And you can see, because this is thermal footage, you can see this thing zooming right under the surface of the water for quite some time. And then it comes out, and it goes down, and it comes back out. And now it has a second object with it. And these two objects sort of dip in and out of the water for a while. And then finally, they both disappear into the water for good. And there are actually people out there who call themselves UFO researchers who say, oh, those were birds, or those were balloons, or some of the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. And I just have to bite my tongue sometimes not to tell them, have you, like, I was there in Puerto Rico, right down the road, the night that was shot. And I got to talk to a lot of people who were related to that. And a group of mainstream scientists wrote a 162-page report, the most detailed, thorough report I've ever seen in my entire life, breaking down this event. And it's weird to me that, you know, I when I came out with my, my little short film, I put that thing out there all over the world. And it, honestly, it didn't get that much of a reaction. And I don't know why that is. Um, that's always been really odd to me. Um, and so now this is a validation that is, I mean, like, I, all I saw at first was here, here, here was this uh, new strange object seen in the ocean, and I had no idea what he was going to say. And then I'm scrolling down, he says, off the coast of Puerto Rico. And I'm like, boom, there you go. Why did I tell you? And it, uh, over my 27 years of doing professional paranormal investigation and research, this happens over and over and over again. I spent years studying the Brown Mountain Lights with my team and came to the conclusion that many of the Brown Mountain Lights not only exist, which there were plenty of people who didn't even think they existed, but that they were probably a plasma similar to ball lightning. And there were people who just, uh, they, they, you wouldn't believe the ridicule and criticism that I got from some people in the so-called academic world about this for years, looking down their noses, making these little insults and snide remarks, saying I'm just uh, P.T. Barnum, you know, showman who's trying to make a quick buck and all this kind of bullshit. And then finally, guess what? one of the big colleges and one of the leading skeptical thinkers there finally captured the brown mountain lights and now what does he say well we think these are probably plasmas similar to ball lightning okay oh really i mean and then everybody forgets the years of ridicule that go on and and i could give you uh, occasion after occasion after occasion when things that i have come out and said as just an independent researcher with an independent team where i've come out and said look i don't know what this is but here is my best guess and i put a guess out there and i or i put put some footage out there or whatever and then sometimes it takes 10 years or 15 years or whatever but everybody else catches up to what I was saying and so you know I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm being immodest here but I need to point this out so that you understand that this is how real discovery and exploration works you can't be at the cutting edge of something new and groundbreaking 
without people thinking it's crazy for a certain period of time. And then once everybody else catches up, well, then everybody just pays attention to the new guy because, oh, he's the guy with the PhD, and they forget about those of us who have toiled for years who were right. So here again, I believe um, there, there's still a lot that we don't know here, but this is more verification that there are these strange, dark objects that are flying around Puerto Rico. And if you haven't seen the short film that I did, you have to see it. It's free to watch. Uh, just go to joshuapwarren.com, and there's a little section on the menu there called Gallery of the Strange. And when you click that, there are a number of headings there. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how that one is labeled. It's probably just labeled OUFOs. Here, let me see. I'm in front of my computer. So, uh, okay, click Gallery of the Strange. And then you scroll down. Yeah, okay, so there's just a, a, a heading there. It says OUFOs, Organic UFOs Report. And you click that, and you can watch the video, and you can um, read a press release and see some stills and some enhancements and all this kind of stuff. And I put this out in, uh, well, in June of 2017. So that's pretty uh, cool and exciting, and I, I especially like the fact that, again, they're not saying this is some flying saucer or whatever. They're just saying this is some big, <laughs> big, weird black mass. And isn't it interesting that it took a torpedo? Because you hear these stories about... Um, about how that sometimes these UFOs are actually sort of zapping and neutralizing missiles and even shutting down nuclear silos and stuff like that. And it may be that one of the reasons so many of these UFOs are seen around military bases is that they are interested in our ability to destroy things. Because if this planet is some kind of a big Petri dish, and it sure as hell looks like it could be, especially compared to anything else that we can see out there, well, they don't want us to screw up the Petri dish. You know, uh, that's that's it's really annoying when your subjects get out of control and are about to destroy the, their own cage, right? And so it, it's kind of interesting. There was a... Uh, something I posted on my Twitter account uh, just yesterday or the day before about how uh, a legitimate scientist is saying it's possible that when these near-Earth objects go by that they could be uh, observers from another you know, civilization and they're just sending by a, a big ship of some kind or observation station to check on us because we don't know much about these objects. They they go by really fast and you know we just don't have much research on them and it would be a good camouflage if there were another civilization sort of checking on us so these are all wonderful things to think about and it also makes you think that uh, we have this um, we have this illusion or conception as humans that something that is technological it looks very refined it looks very structured and fixed in some way but maybe that is a, a very limiting factor and that more advanced technology starts to look more organic again which is why some of these things look kind of lumpy and weird and uh, they they don't have the, sh the kind of shape that we're expecting all the time so think about that okay 
Now for something completely different. You, of course, have heard me tell you before that the most stolen book in the entire Buncombe County library system is... Now let me let me pause, and you're like, huh, Buck? You know, I'm from Asheville, North Carolina, which is this big scenic. It's not it's not it's not a big town, but it's a huge tourist attraction. Big big tourist attraction. Um, beautiful mountains. They call it Beer City. There's so many microbreweries everywhere. And as a matter of fact, so many people come there that the the town really can't handle it beautiful architecture there they wanted to tear down a lot of buildings uh in in the the late 20th century but Asheville was hit so hard by the great depression it took decades to recover and they they literally did not have the money to tear down buildings that they wanted to tear down which was a blessing in disguise because now we have all this wonderful historic often art deco type of architecture that you can see and gargoyles hanging off buildings and all that you know you have um griffins and all these big kind of uh gothic structures and statues it's really it's really it's, it's a great especially at night it's a really cool place some of the streets are still at least one of them is still cobblestone beautiful place that's why um I have my haunted Asheville ghost tours there. I was born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina. And now, if you go to Asheville, you're hard-pressed to find somebody who was born and raised there because most of the people have come in from all over the rest of the country and and you know that causes some conflict with driving up real estate prices and supply and demand and all that kind of business. But it's a cool place to visit. You got buskers all over the place now doing everything you can imagine. And um, there's a lot of, of course, hiking and rafting and all that fun stuff. Well, Asheville's so popular now that when I travel all over the country, whatever city I'm in, you know, I'll turn on the TV and frequently I'll see a commercial, a tourism commercial for Asheville, North Carolina. They show the Biltmore House. That's George Vanderbilt's estate, the largest privately owned residence in the country. It's again beautiful majestic place it's, it's america's most visited winery so asheville's extremely popular right now and it's an expensive place to visit but that said uh growing up there when i was a teenager you know i became infatuated with all the ghost stories in the area and so i wrote the very first book of asheville ghost stories when i was uh i wrote it when i was 18 going on 19 uh, in that period of time and it was called Haunted Asheville simple enough right and I, I just I to this day I can't believe that nobody had ever written a book of Asheville North Carolina ghost stories before I wrote that book the book pretty much instantly became a regional bestseller and that's what made me realize at a young age well I can be self-employed you know I know how to make money doing this and so I um, I saw this evolution of like you know people would buy the book and they'd want to turn it into an activity and then that turned into the tour business and you know when the tour started we were happy if we had five people show up for a tour but now we regularly have over 100 people on on a tour you know and, and of course we can split that up with multiple tour guides and stuff 
but uh, it's amazing how many people come to take these these tours and so I have seen this sort of bonanza of, of ghost tours in Asheville and other ghost books and all this stuff that's just exploded since 1996 but it all really started with haunted Asheville and so to this day okay now Asheville is this the, the county seat of Buncombe County interesting story about Buncombe County it's actually related to the word bunk because there was a congressman who said that something was bunk in the 1800s like something was bullshit and um, bunk or bunkum or what and that that followed uh, basically the word bunk and bunkum are related let's put it that way I don't remember exactly how it all worked out but anyhow so in Asheville of course there are plenty of libraries there are libraries all over the county it's a big county and the I mean millions of books by everybody Shakespeare Thomas Wolfe F. Scott Fitzgerald Hemingway J.K. Rowling but the number one most stolen book to this day in the entire Buncombe County Library System is my book, Haunted Asheville. Now, why is that? So, yesterday, the front page of the Asheville Citizen Times, which is the big newspaper in the region, it's owned by USA Today, had a story about this. And I've got it in front of me. They, the headline here is Spooky Shelves. What the most stolen library book in Buncombe County says about Asheville. And it's got some pictures with it, pictures of myself and uh, others. This was written by Brian Gordon, and uh, he did a great job. Excellent writer. I talked to him on the telephone, and then he went out and uh, did his own research. I'm going to read this article for you. And, of course, I posted this also on my Twitter uh, account. If you don't follow me on Twitter, I don't know why you don't. You know, I only post good stuff. So here is the article. More likely an act of man than paranormal activity, the book Haunted Asheville keeps vanishing. In fact, librarians say no book is stolen from the Buncombe County Public Libraries more than Joshua P. Warren's account of area apparitions, lore, and the occult. To deter thieves, librarians have taken to storing copies securely behind their desks. Quote, any librarian in the county will tell you that they've lost copies of it, librarian Vance Pollock said. Quote, invariably, every branch in the county has had a copy go missing and some many copies, end quote. County library records show 27 of 37 copies of Haunted Asheville as either missing or definitively lost. This does not include older copies long erased from the system. Pollock estimates a dozen have disappeared over the years from Pack Memorial Library alone. Time and time again, citizens enter libraries to discover Haunted Asheville in the catalog, but not on the shelves. They have a picture of Vance sitting there and the library holding a copy of the original cover of Haunted Asheville, the original edition. Quote, I think there's something about the book that appeals to maybe mischievous characters, Pollock said. 
quote, taking haunted Asheville is an epidemic, end quote. It goes on to say, across 173 pages, Warren's Haunted Asheville dives into famed fantastical legends of western North Carolina like the Pink Lady of the Grove Park Inn, the haunting of Helen's Bridge, the burial near Irwin High, where Warren graduated, and the ghost of 13 WLOS-TV. Quote, it was the first of its kind, Warren said over the phone from his home in Las Vegas. Quote, that's the only way that I can make sense of why it keeps getting taken, end quote. As a child in Asheville, Warren steeped himself in the supernatural stories of his hometown. He wrote prodigiously. Haunted Asheville, his fourth book, was published in 1996 when Warren was 18. Actually, I was born in 1976, so in 96 I was 20, but I wrote the book. Uh, it took me a while to write it, when I was around 18, 19, and it came out when I was close to 20. Sometimes I would... Uh, put a copyright date on stuff that was like for the following year so it would seem fresh for a while <laughs> um anyway quote there are haunting tales waiting to be told in the pages ahead warren writes in the introduction quote read them carefully take your time things die slowly in the mountains especially stories end quote Warren says the mingling of European and Native American folktales has made Western North Carolina rife with haunting narratives. Quote, it wasn't until I started traveling the country, traveling the world, that I truly realized what a rich tradition we have of celebrating ghost stories, Warren said. Quote, I assumed every place had it, but I kind of took it for granted, end quote. After publishing Haunted Asheville, Warren began guiding nighttime ghost tours showcasing Asheville's dark underbelly, sites of murder, visions, and locally sourced spookiness. His tours continue today. Boy, do they ever. Uh, let's see here. And now it goes on to say, the world's most stolen book, the King James Bible, rarely gets snatched in Buncombe. Pack Library accounts for all seven of its copies. But for some reason, Haunted Asheville induces citizens to commit misdemeanors. Quote, I really don't know why people steal books, because they can always come to the library and check one out for free, end quote. Carla Holler, branch manager at Swannanoa Public Library, said, The off-pilfered Haunted Asheville is still very popular, meaning branches try purchasing new copies as old ones disappeared. She said, quote, I've worked in the system for over 30 years. And I've seen us buy that book over and over and over again. End quote. Holler finds procuring new copies difficult. Warren says he's willing to donate his book to branches in need. Some check out Haunted Asheville and never return it. When a copy is outright taken, there is little way to trace its whereabouts. Most Buncombe County branches do not have electronic security scanners flanking their entrances. Pack Library does, but offenders rip the magnetic code off the back page. Holler surmises people use the haunted Asheville as a guide. Quote, if they have the book, then they can take it and wander around and go check out these haunted places, she said. So maybe that's it. I don't understand it. End quote. Other librarians mention people are known to abscond with books discussing satanic messaging as a way to prevent public access a form of vigilante censorship. But 
Haunted Asheville does not mention the devil. Pollock says readers relate the text to the region's ethereal mysticism. Quote, I think there's some very old energy in these mountains, he said, but those swiping haunted Asheville are earthbound, Pollock said. He dismissed any potential paranormal suspects with a laugh. Isn't that cool? I mean, like, look, I know, I'm in a weird position here. Because I I don't encourage theft. But what I take from that is there is something about that book that I almost, I don't want to go so far as to say, my precious, my precious. But people get this kind of an attachment. It's got a mystical aura around it. Um, as I said in the piece, you know, it was the first of its kind, and that that counts for a lot. But also, you know, I wrote it when I was still a teenager, and I was very passionate about the subject matter and what I was writing, and probably, my I imagine that many of the people who steal that book are teenagers. And the fact that I, I wrote it as a teenager, and on some level, on some frequency, it connects with other teenagers they don't have a lot of money and they just they feel rebellious you know how it goes and that's my guess vance you know did a good job in saying well uh, mischievous characters you know that's kind of a nice way of putting it so um it is it is a strange phenomenon and yeah you can check it out but then you're supposed to bring it back and people they don't want to bring it back when they get it they want to keep it and and i know that they do use it as a guidebook but it goes beyond that because I, over the years, I've had all these people come up to me and tell me that this is my favorite book. And, you know, I just, there's something about this book that I connect with. And if you go and you look at the reviews on Amazon, um, most of them are good. There's there's one person on there you can tell is just out to get me, you know, just had left a bad review for Haunted Asheville which with all this inaccurate shit in it and then and then did the same thing for my novel The Evil in Asheville trolls you know we know how that goes you're going to have your trolls but i meet people face to face all the time who say i i don't know i feel connected to this book in some way so i again i do not support any type of theft but I cannot help but feel somewhat flattered by the fact that people want it that much. So, so in the article, um, you know, I said I would donate some copies. Well, I did. I contacted the publisher, the Overmountain Press, and uh, I originally published the book through my own company, Shadowbox Enterprises. But um, it got to be, at that point, too demanding to fill the orders. I wasn't really set up to fill orders like I me mean, thousands and thousands of orders all the time so eventually i sold the rights to the Overmountain press in johnson city tennessee and so they publish it to this day they just printed a new batch of them and so i contacted them and said uh i'd like to purchase uh, x amount of these to send to the library system and they put a an extra library discount in there which was very nice of them so there will be some new copies distributed this month throughout the Buncombe County Library System. I don't know if they're going to keep them behind the desk. And you have to you know, get fingerprinted and everything before you can read it. 
or if uh, you know, it'll just be in general distribution. I also have uh, donated some copies of my novel, The Evil in Asheville. The Evil in Asheville. And if you've never read The Evil in Asheville, if you're the, if you're the type of person who likes novels, then especially kind of like gothic horror novels, it's a it's a horror novel set in. Asheville, North Carolina. The word Asheville has the word evil in the middle. Asheville spelled A-S-H-E-V-I-L-L-E. So this is a novel that I wrote after I wrote Haunted Asheville. So I, I wrote a nonfiction book about Asheville, then a fiction book. And you should probably uh, just go to Amazon, type in The Evil in Asheville, read about it, and see what you think of that if you're into novels. Maybe someday that will be made into a movie. Seriously. All right. My throat's awfully dry. So that's cool. And, 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 and if you want to get a copy of Haunted Asheville, don't go to Amazon. Um, go to my Twitter page, at Joshua P. Warren, at Joshua P. Warren, and click the link there. You'll have to look through my tweets, and you'll find a link to the page where you can order it directly from the publisher, $17.95. Or if you go to hauntedashville.com, hauntedashville.com, that's the tour website, but there's a section that says links, and if you click the heading that says links, then it'll say, for information on the book, click here, and then that'll take you there as well. So lots of different ways that you can get your hands on that. I am going to, you know, I have a, a really busy October, but I'm going to try to leave some some of my traditional spooky, creepy, October, Halloween-y material for you on this podcast. Every October, I love to read some spooky stories, and often I'll read some passages from The Evil in Asheville and, uh, and other books that I've enjoyed over the years, talk about uh, some traditional stories, some read some poems. You know, I like to do that sort of stuff. So I, I it's going to be harder for me this month than than uh, ever before in October just because of my my travel schedule but I my whole life I have never opened my home to trick-or-treaters and now I have gone trick-or-treating as a matter of fact you may remember I did a podcast about two years ago it was the first you know, month that I started doing this particular podcast. I did one where I went trick-or-treating as a 40-year-old man. And I did this, you know, just, just to see if I could get away with it, what the reaction would be. And so investigator Shelley Wright and I, we put on this terrific get-up, you know, and we went to this community in Asheville, which is very, very festive at Halloween time. It's one of those places where, like, the whole neighborhood gets into it, and there are pumpkins everywhere, and people have just the most elaborate sort of gateways and big animatronic statues, and it's a really cool place to go and trick-or-treat. And I found that the hardest part of this for me was that I am six foot two. And I knew that if I walked up as a six-foot-two guy dressed the way I was, looking like, you know, some devilish thing, uh, I might get shot. Okay, you, you know this ain't no kid. So I hunched down the whole time. I had this big cape and everything, 
and I sort of did my best to perfect this walk where I could sort of hunch down and it still wasn't that I mean I still look pretty big you know I, I'm in my 40s now and so like you know my my knees go when I when I move them. it's not good and so you know walking down the street from house to house hunched over like that it was so painful we only made it to like you know two or three houses and I was like okay I can't I can't do this anymore but I've I've never opened my home to trick-or-treaters and uh, there are a number of reasons for one thing um, I think you know it's a security issue I mean there are plenty of wackos out there who who want to get get their hands on me for one reason or another that's just how it goes when you operate in the uh, public domain Uh, secondly if word got out that I of all people was accepting trick-or-treaters I would have a line around the block because everybody would want to come and get something from me because I'm Mr. Ghost Guy it would be a it would be a huge operation okay it would it would cost me a fortune to do this giving away that much friggin candy so but the third thing is um also I mean it is kind of it is kind of like uncomfortable isn't it to have this opportunity for strangers and masks I don't care if they're kids or not kids can be evil as fuck you know what I'm saying you have these people in masks and they come up to your house and you don't know who you're dealing with I don't I don't care for any of that I would not open my home to trick-or-treaters I really wouldn't but I want to give you some tips that I just read today if you're one of those people and you want to open your home to trick-or-treaters I want to give you some tips on how to make your house like really really creepy and right off the bat these are tips that come from Mr. John E.L. Tenney and he owns this website called weirdlectures.com let me tell you something about John E.L. Tenney I met him several years ago because I was a speaker at the Michigan Paragon, uh, Paracon in uh, Sault Ste. Marie. And I've spoken there, uh, I guess, at least twice. And he was a speaker as well. Now, I had been aware of him and heard him on the radio and followed his work for years. It's, he's one of those guys who it's, it's kind of hard to describe him. Uh, let me just start with, in person, he is a tall well-dressed man a classy man articulate extremely intelligent very witty has a sardonic sort of wit and uh, personality and he is just into layer after layer after layer of really weird shit so I don't care what it is you know he's kind of like me in this regard I don't care if it's UFOs or ghosts or cryptids or magic and demons and spells and what he's into all of it and I think he would be happy with that description of him okay I think he would be more than happy to hear himself presented in that in that way because 
it was such a great pleasure to spend an evening at the bar with him we just really hit it off we had the same kind of mindset i mean he's he's just an open-minded guy who realizes that everything could be true or everything could be a bunch of crap and but you know let's let's play with it and let's just see let's explore it right let's explore this and his easygoing sort of attitude his charm and all that it reminds me a lot of my friend J.R. Yarnell who I haven't seen in a while he lives in South Carolina now I miss hanging out with J.R. but sometimes you meet these kind of like debonair characters and uh, that are just you know they're always self-employed and they're usually very social people and they just like to like to explore life and and uh and they have a really good way of sort of breaking down uh, topics that would otherwise be extremely complicated for for the average person so johnny l tenney he he has this website called weird lectures weirdlectures.com if you're not a big speller that's w-e-i-r-d and then l-e-c-t-u-r-e-s weirdlectures.com it says paranormal and occult phenomena supernatural shamus and observer of the odd i'm not even sure what shamus said i don't even know if i said that right but anyway um i did not ask him for permission to read this article he wrote called 13 tips for making your house a scary stop for halloween but if he has a problem with it i will beg for forgiveness i think he is going to be fine with it though so here are his 13 tips for making your house a scary stop for halloween and by the way i i uh, follow john on uh twitter and i love some of the stuff that he put po- he posts like <laughs> some of the most like off the cuff weird funny subtle stuff i mean sometimes he'll just he'll post something that it's just a thought or it almost seems like a fragment from some screenplay that he's writing about some quirky scenario and uh and he'll just toss it out there and you can see this little moment play out you really need to follow him on twitter so here are the 13 tips for making your house a scary stop for halloween published by john e.l tenney on his website weirdlectures.com number 13 don't mow the lawn now uh, maybe i should maybe i should start there's a little intro and he says and i'm not going to read all this but he says while driving through neighborhoods during the halloween season our eyes are barraged by fake tombstones giant inflatable grim reapers and foam body parts all this can be good fun but in reality we must ask ourselves is this scary and the answer is simple no okay so he goes on to say like hey here's how you create something that's like really creepy so we'll start with number 13 don't mow the lawn he says i don't mean don't ever mow it but if your neighbors are willing to put up with a lawn covered in fake fencing and plastic gravestones you should be able to get away with not mowing your lawn for three or four weeks overgrown lawns provide a feeling of disrepair and abandonment number 12 your porch should be red or orange he says replacing that bright white bulb with a red or orange bulb still shows you were home 
while providing enough light for the kids to get up to the porch. Red and orange lights also create unnatural shadow colors, which can evoke feelings of uneasiness. Um, he says blue and green bulbs are recognized as totally unnatural light colors. It looks like you're making an effort to be different, which negates the feeling of disregard you've built up with the unkempt lawn. See how thoughtful this is? So you got to go with a red or an orange bulb. Number 11, carve your jack-o'-lanterns poorly. No one wants to see an R2-D2 jack-o'-lantern except the kid dressed as General Grievous or Darth Vader. Or well, it says, a jack-o'-lantern is supposed to be creepy. Think of it as a glowing light in the middle of a swamp. Think of a face trying to scare away ghosts and spirits, but don't get too crazy with the design. Stay simple with the concept. It makes the face ten times scarier. Number 10. Leave the screen door shut, but the front door open. With all of the initial unease treaters will feel walking up to your house, an open front door will create a parallel psychological thought pattern. Since open doors are a sign of welcome, the brain's conceptualization of unknowing and knowing will compete for dominance, causing internal feelings of confusion. Did you get that? Leave the screen door shut, but the front door open. Number nine, turn off the lights in your house. One or two candles in the living room far away from the front door will be perfect. Now this should be a no-brainer. As soon as kids see a house all lit up, they know people are in there having Halloween fun. The fact that you have a porch light on, but no other lights is very disconcerting. If your living room is totally lit up, all horror rushes away from the treaters as they see the normal interior of your home. In the dim light of candle glow, shadows bounce and flicker, creating a world of unfamiliar shapes inside your house. Number eight, play classical or orchestral music. Most kids these days only hear classical or orchestral music in a few places religious ceremonies, weddings, funerals, and horror movies. As a plus, a lot of kids associate classical music with old people. Aside from their grandparents, sometimes including them, most kids are confused or even scared of old people. Number seven, make them have patience. When you hear trick-or-treat, don't run to the door. Walk slowly and walk from another room. If you must be doing something, well, why not sit in another room watching TV or playing on the internet? Let them see you coming, but make them wait. As you open the door of the room you are sitting in and meander down the hallway, the glow from your TV or computer can add some neat lighting effects as it shines and flashes behind you. Number six, don't talk. If you must say something when you walk to the door, say, treat. Most people strike up conversations and ask questions about the costumes. Kids don't care. They are there for the candy and to be scared. They have asked you, trick or treat, and you should answer them, treat. Trust me, it's creepy. Number five, don't let them see what you are giving them. It's extra creepy to produce the treat from a suit coat pocket or a purse.
Retrieve the treat and hold it entirely in the hand, away from curious eyes, until you've placed it in the treater's bag. Or have your treats just lying on a table out of view, or anywhere but a giant bowl. Don't let them see what the treat is. Just let them feel it hit the bottom of the bag. Number four, don't underestimate the power of subtlety. Horror comes from the unknown. We all harbor some fear of the dark or of the unfamiliar. Children have a heightened sense of strangeness because things are still new to them and so much is still unknown. When kids leave your front porch whispering to each other, what was all that about? Or dude, that was weird. You can rest assured they'll be talking the next day about the creepy house they went to on Halloween. Your house. Number three, plywood can equal terror. Adding plywood to the inside of your windows really kicks up the effect of an abandoned house. You don't even need nails or a hammer to install the plywood. Just find or buy some scrap pieces and lean them up against your windows from inside the house. You don't want the windows to be completely blocked and the effect of a partly boarded over window will enhance, will enhance the effect of a house in disrepair. Number two, your backyard privacy fence adds mystery. Some people don't decorate their backyard for Halloween because they have giant privacy fences which keep everyone from seeing what is going on back there, which is great. Perceived horror can be far more terrifying than what is actually seen, so use the fence to your advantage. Simple, buy or download a looped moaning sound and then using speakers play that sound close to your privacy fence in your backyard. Don't get too crazy with the sound. Let it be subtle. A constant moan or whine coming from behind that giant fence will make people wonder what in the world is going on back there. And last we have number one. All those fake body parts you've bought are still usable. Although I really don't like the use of props for making a creepy haunted house for Halloween, I know you probably have a bunch somewhere that you paid good money for and feel like using. Well, use them. A great way to use those gory hands, heads, and legs is to keep them inside the house. Any decent serial killer, psychopath, etc. would never leave body parts on the front lawn, but they might have them tossed around the living room or even more disturbingly arranged on a dining room table which can be seen from the front door lay out a whole body part dinner and don't forget to add lots of ketchup when the kids are standing at your front door looking into your house don't be surprised if they aren't there when you come back with the candy <laughs> now it makes me want to uh, to dress up my house uh, <laughs> and do some trick-or-treating. Those are your 13 tips for making your house a scary stop for Halloween. 13, And that's courtesy of Mr. John E.L. Tenney, T-E-N-N-E-Y, weirdlectures.com. And uh, let's see what what his, uh, his Twitter... Okay, well, his Twitter is pretty simple. It's at John E.L. Tenney. There are no periods in there. It's J-O-H-N 
E-L-T-E-N-N-E-Y, and you will see that I do occasionally repost his stuff on my Twitter, at Joshua P. Warren, at Joshua P. Warren. Oh, well, we've covered quite a bit of content today, haven't we? Uh, Hard to believe this is Tuesday? Yeah, it's Tuesday. And uh, as you know, I'm getting ready to head off this week to investigate a secret location. I'll try to squeeze in at least one more podcast for you this week before I go do that because I don't know how much I'll be able to to do while I'm at the secret location. But it's going to be a really interesting, exciting time. And then when I get back from that, you know, I'll be doing some media stuff here in Vegas before I head to Chicago for the big Chicago Ghost Conference. And uh, a lot of you who are listening are looking forward to being there and meeting me there. And we're going to have a lot of fun as I deliver my program called This Is Your Afterlife. Um, I also want to say, so far, you know, I've been fending off a cold. And so far, so good. So far, so good. Thank you for sending out your prayers and your manifesting thoughts to help keep me in shape as I go through this really bizarre month where my schedule's all over the place and I'm not getting proper rest and all. Um, keep sending them. Keep sending those healing vibes because it's, it's almost like I'll be, I'll be I'll be like, okay, I'm fine. It's defeated. And then the next day I'll be like, oh, it's coming back. So I'm, I'm literally like fighting this thing. We're on a seesaw trying to keep my voice intact with all the talking that I do. But thank you for continuing to send your healing thoughts my way. In my next podcast, I'm going to give you an update on the lucid dreaming um, device that I told you about. And I'm going to be doing a very special giveaway, an opportunity, a chance for you to win something for free that I'll be getting into. All that coming up probably in the next podcast. If you like this podcast, go to my website, joshuapwarren.com. There's no period after the P. Go to joshuapwarren.com. Click the link to the Curiosity Shop where you can purchase things that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And right now, just to celebrate the two-year anniversary of this podcast, you can buy anything on that page the curiosity shop there at a 10% discount if you put in this code D10BBB that's D as in dog 10BBB as in boy 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 D10BBB D10BBB that's your discount code to save 10% available for a limited time right now if you go to joshuapwarren.com and look at any of the crazy stuff there in the curiosity shop while you're there click the link to this podcast You'll see it's on the home page there. Big red box in the upper right-hand corner. It's called Joshua P. Warren Daily. Always short, always free, commercial-free, uncensored, independent. When you click that link, you can subscribe through various means or just follow me on Twitter, at Joshua P. Warren, at Joshua P. Warren, and I will usually tweet when a new one is available. So that is it for today. Fun stuff is coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest and support. Thank you for staying curious. And I will talk to you again soon.